Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. If you have one of the Bibles in the back, it'll be on page 846. Mark 10, 32 to 45. Jesus is traveling with his disciples on the way to Jerusalem the last week of his life, and we have at the end of this passage Jesus explaining why he's come. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was, what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just your love and mercy to us. We have been singing about it all morning, and uh, we are reminded afresh of your mercy in this text and your display of kindness and grace, the ultimate display. And so we want that to be the center stage this morning. We want your sacrifice, your death, your burial and resurrection, the gospel message, the person and work of Jesus to be the essence of what we talk about this morning. And I pray that you would thrill our hearts like little kids in a candy shop, so excited, can't contain themselves because we reflect on the magnitude and the glory of this passage. So help us. I pray for the help of your spirit. I need him and I ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. If you're a guest with us, uh, we are honored that you're here. We're very thankful that you're here. 
Uh, others of you are just getting to know us and have been spending a few weeks with us. We're really happy to have you as well. My name is Jonathan. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's a special delight, too, for me to have my friend Darius here, and I just want to mention you, Darius. It's, it's a joy to have you, and, and uh, Darius is a friend of mine. He uh, works over at Famous Bistro, so if you guys go down there and see them. Um, we, are, we are in a series right now um, called Back to Basics, and uh, in this series, we've been asking a question um, about uh, fundamentally who are we as the people of God, or another way to put it is what has God called us to be and to do as the church. I mean, if we don't know what we're doing, if we don't know our job responsibility, then we're obviously failing. So this series is intended to kind of anchor us back in Scripture and remind us what it is that God has called us to do, to be and to do. And we're looking at six different identities. Uh, We're looking that we're disciples, we're members of the church, we're worshipers, and uh, we're family, we're servants, and we're missionaries. And this morning... We uh, come to the identity of servants. Last week, we considered family, that we are a family together in community, and we need each other to walk with Jesus. And this morning, we come to the identity marker of we're servants. Servanthood is one of those subjects that is extremely uh, unpopular in our day. There are hundreds of books on leadership, but there's very few books on servanthood. In fact, just to kind of, I, I thought that was the case, but I thought, well, let me just get on Amazon here real quick and, and check this out. And so I got on Amazon, I typed in leadership, and in the uh, search uh, box, it turned back 246,377 results on leadership. If you put in servanthood, you get 261 results. So that kind of just gives you a little idea of what the world's really interested in. We're all about leadership. Man, we want the limelight, the spot, we want the, the, the glory, we want to be able to lead, and we want to be powerful, and, and we, we crave all that stuff, but don't talk about servanthood. People love to talk about servanthood if, it comes down, if, if it's in regards to one thing. People love to talk about serving God. That sounds good, but as Mark Twain once said, we all want to serve God, We just want to do it in an advisory capacity. In other words, we want to tell God what God wants, what what we want God to do. We want to serve God on our terms. And and what really calls our hand on this servanthood issue is our willingness to serve others. You see, because serving God is one thing, but serving others is, is quite another thing. It rubs us the wrong way. It brings us face to face with the reality that we are self-centered people and that we want to be served, not to serve other people. It's inconvenient to serve. A.W. Tozer, in his prophetic way, wrote this. He said, the truth is that every advance we make for God and for his cause must be made at our inconvenience. If it does not inconvenience us at all, there is no cross in it. If we have been able to reduce spirituality to a smooth pattern and it costs us nothing, no disturbance, no bother, and no element of sacrifice in it, then we are not getting anywhere with God. Was there ever a cross that was convenient? Was there ever a convenient way to die? I have never heard of any. Tozer's right. See, we are, we're selfish by nature. We struggle to serve But Jesus magnifies servanthood. And what we discover in the Bible 
is that through a handful of largely unimportant people who suffered, served, and died, God changed history. God changed the world because it is better to serve than to be served. It is better to give than it is to receive. The first will be last and the last will be first. God's kingdom is literally upside down. Christianity, as we have said here often, is a new way of being human. It's an entirely different way of doing life. Now, that message is not easily embraced. In fact, it was lost on the disciples. Uh, They were tempted, uh, like we would have been, to use Jesus as a means for advancement, to climb the political, maybe the social, religious ladder of their day. And we're the same way. We want a platform. We want to be recognized. We want to be acknowledged and accepted. We love ourselves too much. So we shamelessly self-promote and self-congratulate. In fact, self-expression on the internet has led to a world where, you know, the way up is to be loud, louder than the next guy. The way up is to be cynical, is to be edgy, is to be outspoken. LeBron James has on the back of his shoulders uh, tattooed, chosen one. Michael Jordan refers to himself as Yahweh. Donald Trump declares everything he does as the absolute best. Trump says if he shoots somebody, they would still vote for him. I mean, the extreme narcissism of our day. But behind all of this, hear me, is a desperate, desperate need for validation. People are just wanting to be validated. They're just wanting to be accepted. They want people to say, you know, you're a great person. You are such a good person. And that's where we meet James and John. The disciples are on the road to Jerusalem, and for the third time, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death by predicting his death and telling them what it's going to be like. And for the third time, the disciples utterly fail in their response to what Jesus has told them. They utterly fail to comprehend the the magnitude of what Jesus is saying. Instead, we see another blatant expression of their arrogance and selfish ambition. Remember what happened to The disciples, after the second time Jesus predicted his death, Mark says in chapter 9 that the disciples argued with one another about who was the greatest. So it appears that whatever that argument was that started in chapter 9, that argument is actually spilled over and is continuing now in chapter 10. And now, in fact, it's been taken to an all-new level. And once again, the Lord responds to the failure of his disciples. He uses this moment to bring them together, to teach them, to to say, men, let me instruct you about greatness. Let me talk to you about this subject. And he addresses their hearts and their understanding of what it means to be truly great. And, and, And this incident forms one of the most dramatic moments in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is training these 12 men for their future leadership in the church. And then in verse 45, we experience the climax of this passage in that Jesus draws all of our attention, not only to his his own example of greatness, but for the first time, he does not just predict his death, but he informs us why he came to die, the purpose of his death. Verse 45, then, is the most important verse in this text. And, And really, it's what guided my thinking for this sermon on servants, And as I prepared this message, my hope and my prayer was that as we contemplate verse 45, as we contemplate what Jesus came to do, that you will understand afresh God's love for you. 
and that you will feel in a new way this morning uh, the, the, the deep and great and profound love of God for you and why he came to die. Because this is a very personal thing, okay? Paul said in Galatians, "...and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me." So we talk about Jesus dying for his church, but you as an individual are part of that church, and Jesus died for you. A very intimate and special thing. So I want each member of our church, in fact, I want everyone present here this morning to have a for me experience. Verse 45 is meant to convince you of the love of God for you, that he gave himself for you. And so we're going to end our time with a reflection on that great verse. But before we get there, we need to understand the context of what's happening here in in the gospel of Mark. And we need to see what gave rise to these words from Jesus because we come across this very unusual scene with James and John, two men that were desiring to be great. And Jesus has to redefine for them what true greatness is. So three points that I want to give to us this morning. Number one, greatness requested. Greatness requested. Number two, greatness redefined. And number three, greatness revealed. Greatness first requested. Verses 35 through 41, James and John were out to be the greatest. In fact, if you just kind of give a cursory reading of this text, you would think that James and John already assume that, man, they're the front runners for the greatest of all time award. They're out front. They're, they're leading the pack. And they're pretty confident of themselves, you know? And so notice what, what's happening here. They've actually separated themselves from the other disciples. They're not even hanging with them. They, 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 they've gone off from the pack, and they're going to approach Jesus privately, and they're going to say some things to Jesus. And then they go to Jesus with this brazen and audacious request. It's not like they went to Jesus with a great deal of respect and said something to him very humbly. They come right up to him with the most bold and brazen request possible. In verse 35, they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that request? Whatever we ask. The fact that James and John had no problem, no issue whatsoever asking Jesus to do whatever they asked reveals something about them. I mean, number one, clearly these guys lack no confidence. They're not shy in the least. This is evident not only in the request they make, but in the tone and the manner in which they approach Jesus. There is an air of entitlement about them. They expect that they will get what they ask because they feel entitled. Jesus says to them, very calmly, what do you want me to do for you? And here's the request. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. In other words, when the end of the age comes, Jesus, and and you stand before the whole world as judge of all the earth, and every knee is bowed, and every tongue is confessing that you are Lord, yeah, we kind of want to be there right beside you in the midst of all that glory. And we want to be known as those guys in that position. Is that okay? Is Is that cool, Jesus? For us to stand right beside you in that moment? I mean, if I were Jesus, I would be I would be tempted to say at that moment, so let me get this straight. I I just shared with you, verses 32 through 34, I just shared with you the heaviness of my heart 
and, and what's going to happen to me in a matter of days, that I'm going to be condemned to death, that I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, that I'm going to be mocked and spit upon and flogged and scourged. I'm going to be nailed to a cross. I'm going to be crucified. I will be killed. And all you can think about right now is your place in my kingdom and like where you're going to sit. Really, man? Are you serious? Where have you been? Did you not hear anything that I just said? Like in a matter of moments and hours, I'm going to be under the greatest duress of my life. And you're worried about you and where you're going to sit and your position? That's what I would have said. But Jesus is very different than me. We can all praise God for that. This is a ridiculous request. It's absolutely absurd. But I want you to notice how Jesus responds. Verse 38, Jesus says to them, he just says this so simply. He just says, you don't know what you're asking. You do not know what you are asking. Notice, now you would think that those words from Jesus would cause James and John to, to kind of stop and to say, man, whoa, what are we doing? What, what, what are we, maybe we should reconsider what we're asking Jesus. But it did not cause them to stop. No, they're not concerned in the least. He continues, Jesus says to them, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized? Which, of course, is a reference to the suffering and the death of Jesus that he's describing in 32 through 34. The cup in the Old Testament, for those who don't know, it has, has great imagery. And the cup in the Old Testament was, was a, an image about the wrath of God. So Isaiah 51, 7 says, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Revelation 14, we read in Revelation 14, if anyone worships the beast and its image, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Jesus, of course, confirms this when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about? He's talking about the cup of God's divine wrath and judgment poured out on sin and on sinners. And so when he says, are you able to take this cup? Are you able to bear this cup? That's the imagery in mind. Baptism is another violent image which is signifying here the immersion of Jesus being overwhelmed by his suffering and death and darkness and separation from the Father, Jesus, that he would experience on the cross. And so he asked them, are you able to drink this cup and to be baptized with this baptism? And without skipping a beat, James and John say, yeah, yeah, we're able. No problem. Now, that response ought to send shivers down our spine. To see them respond with such vain confidence. The correct response would have been, No, Lord. No, Lord. Forgive us. We do not know what we are asking. Have mercy on us. Then Jesus prophetically tells them, Okay, then the cup that I drink you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. And see, James and John at this moment, they do not know 
that Jesus was predicting their own eventual suffering and death. But these guys are far more focused on their glory in this moment than they are about suffering, which should be a reminder to all of us as the church that we say a lot of silly things. We say a lot of things we don't understand. We talk in ways that we do not understand. We are overconfident. We think we are stronger than we are. James and John were under the assumption that when Jesus went to Jerusalem, what was going to happen was there was going to be this messianic kingdom that was going to be inaugurated, and Jesus is going to be the Lord over this political kingdom. And, and they wanted to make sure that they could secure a position in this political kingdom because, I mean, hey, if Jesus is going to be the, the, the big guy and he's going to be leading everything, then we want to be right there beside him leading in this political kingdom. They had no idea what's coming. But they, they, all they know is that they wanted to earn a spot next to the throne. Now, notice in verse 41, this is one of the most fascinating verses in the text, is that it says that the other disciples became indignant, angry. Why? Why do you think the other disciples were angry? Do you think they were angry because they were offended with a question that James and John were asking? I don't think so. I think they were angry because James and John beat them to the punch. And they wanted a spot in the glory, and they wanted to sit next to Jesus on his right and on his left. And James and John beat them to the punch, and they're mad at James and John. You know? How, how dare you go up to Jesus sort of covertly and ask him for this, the glory spot, and you didn't even, like, let us get in on this. At least we could have cast lots or something. You know? But none of that happens, and so they're angry. How arrogant are we at times? We think God owes us stuff. You know? God must be really glad to have me on his team. You know, a five-star talent like this doesn't come around too often. You know, and I mean, Peter and James and John, I mean, they're all part of this inner circle of Jesus. They're on the elite team, you know? They're part of Jesus' inner circle. We're elite, you know? This idea of these guys that they're just, they've, they've arrived. But little do they know that not only were they not special, they're deeply confused. They thought that sitting on the right and left hand of his glory meant ruling with Jesus over a political kingdom. They had no idea that the right and left hand side of Jesus' glory would be the mount of crucifixion where the king would be stapled to a cross, filleted and bloodied as a spectacle for the whole world to see, hung in shame as he bears the sin of the world. Sin like the self-centered hearts of James and John and you and me. They had no idea. You want to drink this cup? You want to be baptized with this baptism? You want to be on my right and left hand in glory? Can you endure this? So, you know, this is just a reminder to us that our assessment of ourselves is, is often way off, you know, and deeply misguided. We, you know, we don't know who we really are. And, and, and if we could see... Here's the thing, if we could see even what other people see about us, that would be helpful. Much less what God sees about us. But we think such lofty thoughts. And if we knew ourselves more deeply, we would not think such things. So this is greatness requested. James and John wanted special recognition. They wanted to be powerful. They wanted to be great. And, and let's be honest, we are no different we want to be well thought of. We want to be recognized and praised. We want to be somebody. We want to be successful. We want to be well known. We want to be great. 
Now those aspirations are not entirely sinful all the time. There is a sense in which a desire to lead a great life can be commendable. And to do great things is commendable. But here's our problem. I would, I would challenge you with this thought this morning. Here's our problem. We do not understand what true greatness is. So if we want to be great, we better get our definition of greatness settled first. Otherwise, we're going to be on a narcissistic pursuit of greatness, which is, which is sort of paved over in our society as good. And that's great that you want to do something with your life and way to go. But if we have the wrong definition, it's not great. It's extreme narcissism and pride. And we want ourself and ourself. And we're just about me. It's the me monster. Me, me, me. And so what is true greatness? We need Jesus to redefine it for us. And he does. Greatness is redefined. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and he said to them. So here's the thing. Jesus doesn't get angry. Jesus just simply calls him. He says, class, let's meet. We're going to talk about what greatness is for a minute. And I love, I love how Jesus disciples, his, disciples us. He does the same thing with us. He just calls us together very calmly. All right, let's talk about this. Everybody come back together. I'm going to get on the whiteboard and we're going to talk about greatness for a minute. Jesus calls them to him and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great, there's that word great, among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, can we just pause and celebrate Jesus for a moment? Look at how he responds here. I love his heart. I love his character. Instead of ripping into them with their selfishness and pride, I mean, after all, this is the third time. And they've been arguing on the road about who's the greatest. And these guys are so messed up. And, 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 and Jesus, instead of doing that, he just simply and sweetly goes back to the drawing board and he teaches them. This is how he disciples us. Even when we say hurtful and offensive things, Jesus stays with us. He trains us. He does not give up on us. God does not divorce his people. Praise God. This is love. This is love. And it's what gives us confidence, and it's what should give you confidence this morning, that you're going to make it to the end. Because Jesus isn't going to give up on you when you do something really dumb later today or tomorrow. That he's going to just gently pick you up, and he's going to say, son, he's going to say, daughter, you know, look, let, let me help you here. This is not done right. Let me correct you. He's so gentle with us. So Jesus redefines greatness and he compares it with a worldly example. He says the world has kings in high positions who rule over people. But this is not the way you are to live. And then Jesus turns everything upside down. He says, whoever wants to be great must be your servant. There's the key word. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now you think about that word slave in that society. The idea of a slave would be absurdly paradoxical. But to say that if you want to be great, you're going to be a slave. You want to be first, you have to be a slave. That, that's an amazing paradox. But again, this is the upside down nature of Jesus' kingdom. The way of the world is pride. The way of Christ is humility. The way of the world is authority. The way of Christ is submission. The way of the, the, way of the, of the world is vanity. The way of the cross is meekness. The way of the world is significance. The way of the cross is is service. Sinclair Ferguson says, 
in the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of our servants. It is seen not in how high up the ladder we have climbed, but how far down the ladder we are willing to go for the sake of others. I love that image. You know what? We need to be on a quest to go down the ladder, not up. But everything in our society tells you to climb the ladder. It tells you to do something more. It tells you to be something greater. And you're constantly in this pursuit of climbing the ladder. And Jesus says, that's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God means go down, go down, go down. Just what Jason and Will were sharing with us. Go down. See, going and giving your life away to guys at St. Benedict's would be a great example of going down, down the ladder, not up the ladder. The world is driven by selfish ambition and pride, but Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. Church, did you hear that? Jesus is speaking to us. It shall not be so in our church, in our lives. There is to be a distinct absence here. Hear me. There is to be a distinct absence in this church of selfish ambition. That Jesus is saying to each of us this morning that the world is motivated by selfish ambition, but not so with you, Heritage. Not so with you. Jesus is redefining greatness. Jesus is saying the greatness in the world's eyes is is a self-sufficient person who is motivated by selfish ambition, ultimately for the purpose of self-exaltation. Self-ambition, ultimately for the purpose of self-exaltation. A self-sufficient person, that's the world's definition. But he says, biblically defined, greatness is getting down and serving others for the glory of God. It's laying down your life for the sake of others. This is the definition of true greatness in the eyes of God. According to Jesus, greatness belongs to the one who's not great. Greatness belongs to the servant. Now, here's the good news. When I think about our church and what God is doing here, I, I, see, I see people, so many people who understand this truth. And it makes me proud and happy as a pastor is that there are people who are busy serving other people for the glory of God. And they're not being driven by selfish ambition. I mean, I love, for example, this is just a random example, I love to preach after our worship team has led us. Because there is a God-given absence of selfish ambition in their leadership. These guys are not, this is not a show. They're not trying to perform. They are humbly out of the way, trying to direct our attention to God, and that is the kind of church that I want to worship in, where there's an absence of selfish ambition. And I feel God's pleasure when we worship Him together because I know that this is real, that this is, this is genuine. And, and, and we can say that about many other ministries in our church, our children's ministries and our deacons who, who tirelessly give themselves for the sake of the church and so many other ministry teams in, in the church. I mean, the way these guys work in the audiovisual room, week in and week out, it's hard work, you know? And it's frustrating work and the internet breaks and, and the cameras go wrong and things happen and they're trying their hardest to fix it. And they're laboring for your good and for our good and for the glory of Jesus. So many things in our church, so many evidences of grace in our church. And I praise God. And I'm humbled and I'm thankful as a pastor that we have such people. And I could say that by God's grace, we are not 
characterized by a people that are filled with selfish ambition and conceit. But we are, we, we are a church that, by God's grace, esteems others as better than ourselves. And to the degree that that is true, it's not perfectly true, but to the degree that that's true, God deserves the praise. Because he has created us that way. He has made us that way. He is working on us. Because see, Jesus is, is busy redefining greatness for us. And he's working with us and he's instructing us. And so now with that encouragement in mind, I want to encourage you, church, to excel still more. I, because here's my concern is that, is that while we have a measure of that, I want that to remain the pattern of our church. And that means, parents, this will be your primary responsibility to, to model for your kids what true greatness is. That they need to see you serving and they need to see you giving your life away to others. And when they see that, you are imparting to them that grace so that when you're dead and gone and you're off this world and they're still here, that they're still serving in the church because they had a habit of watching their mom and dad serve and give their life away to other people and being a part of ministries like St. Benedict's and giving their lives away and their kids. That leaves an indelible impression on them. And ministry leaders, that means that if you're leading a team, a ministry team in this church, that it is your responsibility to lead that team by example and, and to show them week in and week out what it means to lay down your life for the good of others. And you're not here for praise, for title, for recognition, that we're here to work hard and we're here to make this better every day, every week, you know, that you're, you're, you're approaching your ministry with a, with a motif that says we're striving for this ministry to be better today than it was yesterday and better tomorrow than it was today. Every day, we're going to make it better. We're going to strengthen it for the glory of God. We're going to work hard. We're going to be excellent. We're going to show up on time. We're going to labor. We're going to be a part of this together. We're going to pray together. We're going to, we're going to, before we get going in all of our activities, we're going to pray and ask God to bless this team, bless the children's ministry, bless our audio, visual equipment, bless our efforts involved with it. We're going to pray. So I just encourage you guys who are leading these teams, lead them spiritually. And, and lead your teams by example. Of course, the ultimate example is of laying down your life is Jesus. And so we see this in the last place is we see greatness revealed. Verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus takes his definition, this redefinition of greatness, and he applies it to himself. And he can do that because he's God. And he says, this is greatness, is, that, is, is the one who come, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If, if, if we want to know what it means to be a servant, then we look no further than Jesus, the quintessential example. In verse 45, as I said, he tells us the reason why he came. And each phrase of this is, is so important. First, just, just notice this with me. Just, just worship with this phrase that the Son of Man came. He came. Aren't you glad He came? He actually came and He healed us and He redeemed us and He stepped into our mess that He did not just stay in heaven and that God did not just look upon us in all of our sin and rightfully judge us and condemn us and and, and shove us to hell, but that God looked at us in our broken state and he came. The son of man, don't let that miss, don't let that fall on deaf ears. The son of man came. 
God became man and dwelt among us. The greatest thing that we need happened. The Son of Man did not just stay in heaven. He came, born of a virgin, took on human form and flesh, and He lived here, and He died here to pay for our sins. The Son of Man came. And we thank God, how we thank you, Jesus, for your coming. What a merciful Savior. How we thank you, Father, for sending him. If he did not come, we would all be damned. And what did he do when he came? He came not to be served, but to serve. This is an amazing reality that the Son of God came The Son of God came, the one who is rightfully deserving of all honor and praise and service, the one that when he walks into the room, you fall flat on your face and worship, that that Son of Man came not to be served, but to put on his clothes for service and to serve, to wash your feet, to get down on his hands and knees, to serve you, to bow bow himself prostrate low to the ground to get next to our dirty and disgusting feet and wash them. Sinners, people that are angry, people that are bitter, people that struggle with with pride and, and fighting for supremacy against God and who want to have positions of glory. He comes and he humbles himself and he gets next to us in all of that sin and he serves us. And this is unthinkable that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. What king does this? See, this is the upside-down nature of Christianity. It's a totally new way of being human. People don't live like this in the world. Kings don't do this. Name for me another king anywhere in the world that has ever humbled himself like this. Who does this? This is the whole pattern of Jesus' ministry. And then we read that in the marriage supper of the Lamb that Jesus will come back and he'll put on his clothes to serve. So when we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we have this massive feast with the best wine and food ever on the new heavens and the new earth. And we sit down with all of God's people across all times to worship him. Jesus is going to be serving those tables. What? I mean, that's insane. And here's the thing. It's going to, that's going to create so much worship in our hearts that we won't be able to contain it. That Jesus is going to be there serving us. It's just Amazing. The only one who is rightfully entitled to all worship and service comes not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man came to serve us. And how did he do this? Next phrase. By giving his life a ransom for many. Look, this is the kind of service that only Jesus could provide. So, see, nobody else could provide this kind of service. Because somebody else could give their life, but it wouldn't have been a ransom. It wouldn't have been accepted by the Father. It wouldn't have been good enough to redeem us from our sin. It would, have been like, it would have been like you being a prisoner of war and being taken in by like ISIS or something. And you say, I got five bucks. Can I buy the guy out? He's like, five bucks? Maybe five million and we can start talking. You dying for somebody else's sin does nothing. It's piddly. It's a joke. But when Jesus comes and he dies, his blood is perfect and his ransom is sufficient. And when Jesus came, he came, he laid down his life, he came to redeem. He offered himself for us freely. Jesus' death as a ransom for us was his most important act of service. And this is why he died. His death was a ransom. Donald English, in his helpful commentary, 
in the Gospel of Mark says this. He says, a ransom is the price paid to liberate a slave, a prisoner of war, or a condemned person. John Stott then, he goes on to say this, really like this. He says, the emphasis here is on our sorry state, our captivity to sin, our bondage to sin that made this divine rescue a necessity. See, the the fact that Jesus is dying as a ransom says something about you as well. Not just about his greatness. It says that you're so messed up, man, that a guy had to die for you. Do you hear that? If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, I just want you to take hope in this. I want you to say, look, okay, I want you to acknowledge with me for the first time, you know what, I, I need to quit being prideful. My life is really messed up. But you know what? Here's the great news for you. It's so messed up that someone died for you. And, if, and here's, the, here's the even better news, that that one who died for you, his death was sufficient so that all your sins can be forgiven and you can be made right with God. <laughs> it's a sufficient Sufficient death. What a, what a glory that this is. So Jesus purchased our freedom with his own blood because we cannot free ourselves. It is possible, impossible for us to free ourselves. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And what is that price? It is the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus paid the price and set us free. In order for us to be redeemed, Christ must die in our place as a substitute, receiving what we deserved. No one else can do this. Here's the thing. is This is the one for the many, right? He's a ransom for many. So one for many. The Son of Man takes the place of many, and there he is on the cross, and all this happens to him. And, and, and what's happening to him is what should have happened to us. He's our substitute. He's standing in our place. He's bearing the wrath of God that we deserved. You know, one of my favorite pieces in early Greek literature, and you know, you should just encourage you to read the the patristics. That's the early church fathers. There's some amazing stuff in in that reading. And one of my favorite pieces in early Greek literature is a document called Letter to Diognetus. And that letter is a defense concerning the nature of true Christianity because in the midst of a polytheistic, idolatrous culture, this guy, we think his name is Methetes, wrote this letter to Diognetus, who is some kind of a, a Greek pagan sort of ruler, and he's saying, let me tell you what true Christianity is and how we are distinguished from the world. It's, a, it's just a brilliant essay. And then there we have this. Listen to this. This is one of the clearest articulations of the gospel I've ever heard in any era, period. Unbelievable. Listen to this. Having clearly demonstrated our inability to enter the kingdom of God alone, God shows that we can only do so by his power. When our unrighteousness was revealed, and after it was made perfectly clear that its wages, or what we earned for it, was punishment and death, and that that was to be expected, then the season arrived during which God had decided to reveal at last his goodness and power. Oh, the surpassing kindness and love of God. He did not hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, he was patient and forbearing. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. He gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, 
The just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in the one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. An amazing statement on the gospel from letter to Diognetus. In my place, in my place condemned he stood. The price has been paid in full. And the effect of this death is not only the ransom of many, but here's the thing, it's the transformation of many. That's the result. We who were once motivated by selfish ambition and self-exaltation can now give our lives away for the sake of others. See, the story of James and John does not end here. It does not end within jockeying for a position to try to get a glory spot in Jesus' kingdom. As bad as this report is, we know that they were transformed by the sacrifice of Christ. Why? James went on to have a massively important ministry in the early church. He was martyred for his faith. We read in Acts 12 that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged in the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Do you remember those words of Jesus? The cup you will drink. James drank that cup. He was martyred. Why would a guy who was on such a quest for glory be willing to lay down his life? Do you not see, friends, how the gospel is transforming us? The gospel took this prideful, arrogant man, James, who wanted all the glory and transformed him into a martyr. This is the power of the gospel. What enabled James to lay down his life? Mark 10 is the answer. Jesus died and James was transformed. Jesus saw his mentor, James saw his mentor, Jesus, lay down his life, and he wanted to lay down his also. Amazing. And the same is true for John. Though he was not martyred, John was heavily persecuted. He was banished to the Isle of Patmos. And ultimately, John was understood, understood this thing as well because he wrote, this is what John wrote, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. I think, I think John got it too. James got it and John got it. Why, why did they get it? How did they get it? They got it by looking at Jesus. This is the same James and John that were fighting for supremacy in God's kingdom, trying to get a leg up on the other disciples. So what changed? They saw Jesus lay down his life and they were transformed. And that's a very simple message to us this morning. I don't have 10, re- 10 ways that you can be a better servant in 2016. It's not what this sermon is. You know what this sermon is? This sermon is lifting up Jesus and saying, if you'll get a hold of that picture, if you'll see that, that will transform you. And you won't have any problem being a servant. You know, you won't. The, the, the reason why we're so selfish and we have such a struggle serving is because we're not reflecting on the gospel. The more we reflect on the gospel, rehearse the gospel, and remind ourselves each day what Christ did for us, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, the more we're transformed by that. So the next time you see someone serving your children in children's ministry, the next time you see that guy standing outside in front of that door freezing, lifting the door, opening it for people, the next time you see that, you should not only admire that example, which is truly great, by the way, it's greatness. You should not only admire that example, but you should be reminded of our Savior who laid down his life. 
When you see someone serving others, you're, what you're seeing is the effect, the evidence that Jesus has changed him, has changed that person. See, those individuals who are serving are individuals who are being transformed by the death of Christ on their behalf. They're understanding what greatness is. Greatness in the kingdom of God is the one who serves. Here, here, here's the thing. The greatest servant is the king himself. And Paul says it this way. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here's our identity. We are servants and we serve a servant king. We follow a king who could have condemned us justly in our sins, but instead he took the condemnation for us. Isn't that amazing, love? Isn't that the kind of king that we want to follow? Isn't that the kind of kingdom that we want to be involved with? Now, as, as I close, I want to invite Jonathan, you and your team, you guys come forward. And, and let me just conclude this way, is that I just want to remind you that apart from the liberating love of God, we are all destined to serve ourselves, okay? We're going to be stuck on ourselves, hell-bent on serving ourselves. But if Christ has given himself for us, here's the thing, we are free to give our lives away. And not only free, but we have a new power to do so. And that means all of us are in one of three places this morning. Either you are serving yourself, uh, either you are serving selectively, or you are serving without reservation. You know, if you're serving yourself, you're working your fingers to the bone, you're trying to earn money, to buy more stuff, to live out the American dream, you're still on a quest for fame and glory and greatness. But listen, I can tell you, that is all vanity. It's going to do nothing but drive you into further and further depression and discouragement. It will never, ever, ever fulfill you. And if you're serving selectively, you know, some of you are here. Hear me. This is a word for you. Some of you are just very selective servants, you know. And what I mean by that is you'll do it if it's convenient. You know, if it's not convenient, you won't serve. It's service on my time, my schedule, my location, my terms. And if it doesn't meet that criteria, I'm not going to do it. Service on my time. You see, you'll, you'll do it if you get something in return. You'll serve if it takes place on a platform or in front of cameras. You'll serve if you get recognized for it. But if it doesn't benefit you in some way, psst, ain't nobody got time for that, right? If that's you, you need to repent. You better have time for that. And then finally, Jesus has called all of us to serve without reservation. Here's the key to that. When you understand that you already have everything that you need in Christ. Hear this. When you understand that, that out of that abundance, you will begin to share your life with others. See, the reason many of us are selfish and slow to serve is that we don't think we have very much. And so we're on this constant rat race and quest to get more for ourselves because we don't think we have enough, because we don't understand the gospel. But when we lay hold of the fact that everything we need has already been given to us in Christ and that someday we will inherit the new heavens and the new earth and that we will have everything and that we will reign with Jesus, when we understand that, then we'll be free and we'll have the power to give our lives away because what else do we have to live for? We don't need to amass any more things. We already have the greatest thing we could imagine. That's what he did for us. See, that kind of humility and service is how Jesus won us over. So I just want you to be transformed by that reality. Now, as, 
as we leave here, what we're going to do is I just want you to watch this two-minute testimony, and then Pastor Ted will come and, and say a word, and we're going to sing and, and close our worship service. <laughs>